0: I was 29. I didn't have an MBA. I'd never worked at another corporation. And so, logically, honestly, I shouldn't have been in the role. But I think that a lot of times we can do more than what we've done before would suggest. There's a a great T.S. Eliot line if you're not in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? Welcome to Owning Your Legacy. I'm your host, Lorette Rondonet. This podcast
1: is about exploring just what it means to own your legacy. Through intimate conversations, we explore how to bravely tap into purpose, leadership, and becoming visible. My hope is that we inspire you to realize your own potential. Go after your dreams and boldly leave your mark. It all begins with bravely owning your legacy. So hi, Christy. Hello, Lorette. Thank you so much for joining me on Owning Your Legacy. And I know that you don't do a lot of podcasts and a lot of speaking, and I feel really honored that you are joining us uh, today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here on Valentine's Day. Yes, it is. Nowhere else you'd rather be. And you look beautiful in your red dress. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for the red roses. <laughs> sure. So I uh, remember the first time I really got to meet you. And you were doing a keynote speech at NABO, which is the National Association of Women Business Owners. And we have a great chapter here in Chicago mm-hmm. that I know you're very engaged with. I think you won an award that day, too, if I recall. Which True. Yeah, what award was that? It was Lifetime Achievement or something um, like something like that. Something like that. Um, and your keynote speech resonated with me so much. I felt like kindred spirits. One of the stories you told, I remember a few of them, but so this was. An, and I, I want. I'm going to hand it over to you to kind of tell your story on this. But there was one point in the speech that you were like, kind of taking over Playboy, and um, your dad had said. It's kind of like I had a really big party and you're here to clean it up, which I thought was hysterical. And then he's like, you can do anything. You
0: can bet anything, but do not bet the mansion. Actually, that he didn't say. That was what I came up with to say to the team when we would be looking at new business opportunities. And obviously it was a riff on the old, you know, don't bet the ranch. Yes. And and we have a family cottage
1: in Michigan that I just could picture my dad saying the same thing. Like, you can do anything, but don't touch the cottage that's (laughs) like in the family forever. So with that, I would love you to kind of touch on, you know, I think we are similar ages when we took over our father's businesses and just kind of talk us through what that was like for you and a little bit of your history and your story.
0: Sure. Well, I did not grow up thinking I wanted to go into any kind of business. My interests in high school and college were law, politics, and journalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I worked as a journalist for a year after graduating college and was prepared to apply to graduate school for a joint law and public policy degree at Yale when I went out to visit my father, who'd recently bought the mansion in L.A. And we were just were, were talking, and I said, you know, this is what I think I want to do. And mm-hmm. honestly, my dream was to wind up either in the Senate or on the Supreme Court. So Very Very cool, different, very cool dream. Very different uh Sense of future, then what happened. Um, and surprisingly to me, my dad said, Well, before you go to graduate school, would you be interested in moving back to Chicago? I'd been living in Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just learn a little bit about the company. And I had worked there one summer on the journalism side rather than going to the Radcliffe publishing program. And I thought at first he meant back involved in journalism and publishing. And I said, no, I really, you know, I've enjoyed the exposure to journalism, but it's not what I want to do. And he said, no, no, I mean the business, you know, learn a little bit about the business. And I was young and I went to college at 17. I didn't feel like, oh gosh, if I don't go to graduate school now, I'll never go. I love Chicago. And um, I think I thought it was like a junior year abroad. It would just be interesting for a year or two. And I think my father thought it would be, A chance to spend some time together because my parents divorced when I was very young. Mm -hmm. I only saw my father a few times a year, so I moved back to Chicago and went to work with no intention of staying for you know twenty plus years, Mm -hmm. no intention of running the company someday. And in hindsight, I think that made the initial transition much easier. I was not the heir apparent. I
1: agree.
0: I got to you know kind of move around the company in different roles, different departments, learn about the businesses. I got assignments. One was a retail project the company was interested in. One was in new magazines. And it was only after uh, the company got in trouble in 1982 when it had to divest its most profitable line of business, which were its casinos in the UK, that I really seriously thought about stepping up and seeing if I couldn't help. And I went to my father and I went to the board and I said, instead of doing another search to hire another president because they had done that about four years previously, Mm -hmm. Um, I think I could take over and form an office of the president with the then chief financial officer. And, you know, in effect, tomorrow we could start the turnaround
1: and not waste time in the search. Yes. And I think that not heir apparent is an interesting part of your story that I can relate to. So my brother was or is 10 years older than me, and he was heir apparent to Ed Long. Mm-hmm. And my dad had created a path. So mm-hmm. he was going to go to K-State. He was going to be at biochemistry, um, send him off to England to run our England operation. And when my brother was still fairly young, he was living in California, back and forth from England. And he's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to ever move to Chicago. Mm-hmm. He is California now. This, the cold makes him just cringe Um, His blood has thinned. Yes, his blood (laughs) has thinned. So at that time, I was probably in about eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, though, weirdly, I always remember wanting to run the family business. So that's kind of, I don't know where where I got off thinking that when I knew clearly that my brother was heir Mm -hmm. apparent. But so when he had a conversation with my dad and said, I really want to be a teacher and ended up, and it was amiable. I mean, it really wasn't like Mm -hmm. a heated conversation or anything. I think, you know, we can't force people to take these kind of jobs on. Well,
0: I always say when people who are parents are interested in their children yeah. coming into the business, and they ask me for advice, the one thing I say, because it's the one universal piece of advice that I think works, is don't make the child feel that um, you will be disappointed if they don't. That, that is, is just
1: huge advice. Terrible
0: for the relationship and. It won't work well regardless of whether the child comes into the business or not. And you have to love it.
1: And I, you know, I have, um, so I'm the youngest of seven, so there was a lot of siblings there, but nobody else really at least at that point wanted it at all. I was, I wanted and I loved it and I had a, a vision. And I have five boys, so I hear what you're saying, and I have definitely not, if they're interested, I love talking right. about it, but they, I want them to find their happiness and their joy and their purpose. So one another question that comes out of that time in your life. And so I was 26 when I joined, mm-hmm. you were 29, but I I was 30 when I came became president. I had to fire my boss. So mm-hmm. um and it was kind of a similar situation of like is she ready? Can she do this? Um but what was your vision at that time? Did you have a vision for Playboy that you're like this is what I feel its purpose
0: should be or it's No, at that moment, my vision was um, save the company. Survive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the company had just reported a $50 million loss. The banks pulled the lines of credit. The stock plummeted. Morale was... I mean, I
1: didn't have that big of a
0: number, but the same story. uh, You know, (laughs) needless to say, terrible. And um, I was 29. I didn't have an MBA. I'd never worked at another corporation. And so logically, honestly, I shouldn't have been in the role. But I think that a lot of times we can do more than what we've done before would suggest. There's a a great T.S. Eliot line, if you're not in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? Oh, I love that. So um, we really set about focusing on um, managing for cash and getting the company... Back on sound financial footing, and because my father had voting control, even though it was a publicly traded company, I didn't have to worry about earnings. I didn't have to worry about the stock price. Near-term. That's
1: huge. I didn't, so I, didn't I really know could that. focus on
0: cash. So
1: you knew that it couldn't have been sold out from underneath Correct. you. That
0: is very important. Yeah, it was. It was very helpful because, as you know very well in business, one of the keys is. You know what are you measuring? What are what is what are the key data points that you're looking at? And for us, it was cash. So, mm. uh, if I had an MBA, I would say we rationalized the lines of business. Since I don't, I would say we dumped the losers. Yes. So yes. I sold or closed a lot of different businesses, and only if some years later, after my father had a stroke and fortunately recovered but really kind of decided I don't want to be chairman, CEO of a publicly traded company, and I became mm-hmm. CEO, did my focus turn to what's the vision for the company? And mm-hmm. that's really when we created the vision of not being a publishing company, but being a brand-driven multimedia company.
1: I love that story, and <clears throat> I don't want to get there, but I, I think that is so true that, that there's gradual steps that we took or we take. And ours was very similar that when I... My dad had never done a layoff um, when I joined, and well, I had Garrett and came back after maternity leave, and it was, and he was a mess about it. It was, the bank was calling the loan. We had put in um, a big spray dryer and some other equipment, so we were leveraged for the first time probably ever, and then lost a big account. And his friend came in when the bank called the loan and had a million dollars in his briefcase and really bought us time. But that survival mode, as hard as it was, was. I don't know how you feel about this, but some of the most exciting time because everybody was going towards one mission of survival. And I think I read you were talking about it was people knew we had to make a change. Mm-hmm. So I think both of us were blessed in that regard that we could come in and change stuff and throw stuff at the wall and see what stuck and go with our gut and and it worked.
0: Yeah, I do think crises um, offer opportunities. Right. Um, you know, that... When he was chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel famously said, "You know, don't let a good crisis go to waste." And there's, there is such a good point, truth too. to that, because yes. to your point, when things are going really well, it's not easy to um, drive change. Right? You know, human beings are creatures who like the familiar, right? Stable. And you know, if everything is going well, you know, my attitude is, well, why should I have to do anything differently mm-hmm. when things are in crisis? the question isn't whether, but what. And that gives you permission to um, Mm -hmm. think afresh about what business do you want to be in, how to build for success, what has to change. And I think that when we
1: go through those moments, that's also what forces us to look deeper. Like you were saying, I had to shed some of the businesses. Similarly, it's aha moments where you go, these X amount of customers are 80% of our business and we need to diversify or mm-hmm. it makes you really study. And I don't have an MBA either and I, I think we don't
0: need them. We can,
1: you can well, learn a lot. Well, I once said I this. have an MBWA,
0: which is <laughs> management by walking around.
1: Yeah, that's so it kind of important. underscores
0: that, yeah, there's a lot to be learned by
1: observing and... And both of us having similar, um, I came in through the bottom, thank God, before the bottom dropped out. I had, and well, even during that, started in, you know, food science. I always wanted to be the liaison between the salespeople and the technical team, I believed it was like that was just a missing unity link. And then the bottom dropped out and I was in customer service. I wasn't but I had I loved that. And it wasn't really by design. It just happened that I got to try all these different mm-hmm. positions, like you were saying, before really stepping in to the title of president. And I didn't take the title of CEO over until probably two years after my dad passed, which was like mm-hmm. 2009. And I felt like I had to earn it before I could take that. So I'd love you to kind of go back to after your dad had a stroke and then you kind of changed the business model, it sounds like, at that mm-hmm. point. So what year are we in then? 88. 88, okay. And then I love this stuff, and about the retail and the digital aspect of where you went.
0: Yeah, I mean, I you know, traditionally um, magazine companies grew by launching or acquiring other magazines, you know. So Henry Luce starts Time Magazine, Time becomes successful, and then they start Fortune and Sports Illustrated and Money and People and on and on and on. And that Mm -hmm. was Hearst the same way. We tried, having come out of the crisis, to at least give ourselves permission to ask the question of, well, what is the intersection of our leverageable assets and the market opportunities. And because it was in the late 80s and cable television had started to get traction, which created not three channels of television like the networks, but 50 channels of television. And video was coming into people's homes. It just, I think, led us in a direction to say that Actually, our most leverageable asset was the Playboy brand Mm -hmm. more than our expertise as a publisher. And we could capitalize on that by thinking about creating a style of content across media platforms and a a brand that we could leverage through licensing. Mm -hmm. So we started in cable, and then that took us into satellite, and we started in video, and then that took us into DVDs, and then we became the first magazine to actually launch online in 94 and built a very profitable uh, multi-revenue stream digital business. Mm -hmm. And that transformation, which at the time I said is kind of like we went from being a railroad company to being a transportation company, you know, affected everything from how we were organized to what kind of talent we recruited to, you know, how we thought about moving content. And Mm -hmm. You know, to this day, arguably, a lot of much bigger media companies are still struggling to redefine themselves as, you know, brands and content that live beyond their pages.
1: Yeah, very trailblazing. And really, we during our time, we read Good to Great, Mm -hmm. which is, I I still love that book. And it really does make you figure out who you are and what your hedgehog concept is. And the focus, so we ended up becoming really incredibly focused in Flavor's around dairy. That was Mm -hmm. our history Mm -hmm. and that was our expertise. And it did define a lot of um, decisions of who we hire, where we, and helped us compete with humongous flavor companies. So yeah, that knowing your brand Mm -hmm. is really Mm -hmm. important. I loved when you, you were talking about Harley as a brand and Honda's a motorcycle and
0: mm-hmm.
1: you went through it. You really get that concept. And I think yeah, I
0: mean, I do think the word brand is overused. You know, We use right. it as a synonym for any product name or any company name. And I suppose that's okay. I just am a little bit more rigorous in right. how I think of, let's just say, true brands, which have to have a personality, have to have Values. kind of an emotional, yeah, value-based
1: totally agree.
0: grounding, that's what causes a consumer to sort of seek it out and use it as a symbol of self-identification. So, and to getting more and more point.
1: important, in my opinion, especially with you know, the, like my my children, I know they buy based on brand of Tom shoes that gives back, or mm-hmm. you know, you really want to believe in what the company stands for, and and quite frankly, for Edlong, I think that's a benefit because. Are kind of a unicorn in a, in a certain mm-hmm. space. So. I know. I
0: think it impacts um, employees mm-hmm. as well as consumers, as well yes. as investors. Um, I mean, the old days of if you kind of made your numbers and nobody in management went to jail and you didn't create a product <laughs> that made anybody sick, you were doing a great right. job. I mean, that's like table stakes oh, now.
1: Absolutely, that's so. the bare minimum. So then you left Playboy around two thousand and nine, mm-hmm. right? Um, which was big year for the whole entire world, really, 2008, 2009. And I, what I found most amazing, and this was new learning for me, was the amount of women that bought your products. So mm-hmm. I believe you said 80% of, of the, the retail yeah. was purchased by women. And I thought, wow,
0: yeah, that was a huge accomplishment. Well, we learned from early research that particularly the rabbit head itself, um, appealed to women as much as it did to mm-hmm. men, that the attributes of fun, sexiness, sophistication, stylish, freedom right. were you know appealing qualities for women too. And so Absolutely. that encouraged us to move into women's products uh, around the world. Uh, and even what we did in television at the time was quite deliberately intended to be sexy entertainment for couples. And mm-hmm. that's wound up being successful. Probably for me, even more satisfying was that more than 40% of my executives were women when that I left.
1: phenomenal. And
0: one of the keys to success in business, and frankly for any organization, is kind of constant innovation and yeah. constant agile thinking and diversity within thought. the organization is what creates diversity of thought, to your point, and yeah. that's essential for innovative and fresh thinking. So I think it's kind of a business imperative.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Another thing I'm curious about, and you
1: didn't talk about this in your keynote too much, you've touched on your mom a little bit in Mm -hmm. certain places. And um, my mom is hugely important into my, where I am and and so many of my values and beliefs. So everybody knows Hugh Hefner around the world. I'd love to learn more about your mom if there's, you know, how she influenced you.
0: I mean, she really is the person who raised me. Um, She was married for eleven years. wasn't a very good marriage. She now is in a wonderful marriage, uh, but they met when I was already in college. So he he didn't raise me, but they've been together fifty years, and he's lovely. But that's she fantastic. really it's was the for most you influential even to see person. That. Doesn't matter what age we are to see. Oh, for sure, a
1: successful mm. relationship. That's that's beautiful. yeah. And she
0: says, you know, it took me three times, and I said, you know, look, some people never find nothing right wrong person. with that. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think actually most of the qualities that I admire in myself and define me are qualities I got from her. My love of reading, my interest in politics and you know, civic engagement, um, my love of cooking and entertaining, um, my manners, uh, a sense yes. of you look like her from the curiosity. pictures I've seen. You
1: look a lot like her. Would well, that's a like... high compliment. She's a She's quite beautiful. a beautiful woman. She is beautiful. In
0: fact, she had a little heart incident um, a, a few months ago. And so the EMTs were there and they went through the, what's your name? You know, what's your birthday? Right. And when she gave her birthday, the EMT, we probably was all of like 28, looked at her and went, you're very well preserved.
1: Oh, is that cute? <laughs> what a nice way to say that. You're well mm-hmm. preserved.
0: Oh, that's sweet. Does she have a big family? Did- Four sisters. There were five girls. And um, her father was a streetcar conductor. Mm-hmm. Her mom stayed at home. Uh, neither of them had gone beyond high school, but they had very much the European immigrant attitude about the importance of education, mm-hmm. as well as the importance of arts. So all five girls um, graduated college, and all five girls played an instrument all through grammar school, high school, and college. That's cool. So,
1: and I think, I just think what a strong woman to, you know, raise you two Mm -hmm. on her own in that era really had to be quite a challenge. And um, yeah, I would say that my mom had to do that too. And I, I think that the interesting thing of my mom's history was grew up, uh, so she was born in 33, no 34, my dad was 33, she was 34, and there was no choices and even coming back to Playboy and the freedom and some of the values that you that you listed, that there was no choices, there was no freedom. You, we were a Catholic. It was family. pretty
0: limited. Very, I mean, my mom was a teacher before she had kids, um, and she actually loved teaching. And years later, would go back and volunteer as a tutor for kindergarten students in North Chicago. Oh, that's great! But she probably would have been an architect or something different if right. that had been a more supported option for someone at that age.
1: She went, but if I recall, she went to U of I. Mm-hmm. So she went to college. So my mom, her, her father passed away when she was 11 months old and she mm. was the youngest of four girls. So her mom had a struggle yeah. to just keep that going. And, um, she brilliantly smart though, but ended up getting married, you know, 20 first baby at 21. And so by the time I came along, she had been A mother of these seven kids. So six kids under the age of seven, I can't even Mm. imagine. And then I was the seventh, but she was burnt out. Yeah. And I was probably like, you know, third grade. So maybe like 10 or so. And she went back to school and it just started out community college, but she was so thriving and so stimulated by education and learning. And, and my dad didn't take it very well. He Mm. was, uh, and it's kind of sad, but I think that is, um, almost the theory of, you know, you can't, he, he told her, she just told me this like recently within dementia era of her life that he said something like there's not enough room for two successful, or there's only enough room for one successful person in this house or something very,
0: well, you yeah, can't get bigger sad. than the
1: king, so to speak. And.
0: Well, in fact, my mom's second husband, who was a lawyer, um, when my brother and I were now in like, you know, junior high, high school, wanted to go back to work to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she'd been a duplicate bridge player. I mean, she was just, just a super smart woman. Right. And his attitude was, you know, no, you know, it's it's going to, you know, look bad. For For me, that my wife is working. So it was only after she left the bad stepfather that she went back to work. And she actually came to work at Playboy because she was of her generation. She was super smart, had a college degree, but not a resume that is going to get her a job in most situations. And at the time, I was not running the company, but I was responsible for this retail concept called Platique that was ill-conceived from the beginning, but <laughs> I was put in charge of it because no one in the company knew anything about retail, so I didn't know less than anyone else, right. which would have been the first clue that maybe the company shouldn't have gone <laughs> into retailing, but we'll just let that sit. It was a lesson yeah, learned. A lesson <laughs> learned. Anyway, um, she was always very stylish and great with people, mm. uh, and I said, do you want to come and work in the store as a salesperson? It was a uh, fashion and music was the was the merchandise mix, and she did, and she was the best salesperson they ever had. And then that's fantastic. When after I finally got the store to making a little money, we closed it wisely. Um, she wanted to stay at work, and I thought, well, we're again. She's got these skills, but not like specific. Training to go into the law department or whatever. And she went into HR where she worked for decades and she ran all the programs that were not the comp and regulatory and benefits programs. So she did tuition reimbursement and relocation and the blood drive. Big stuff? all of the service awards it's, and all of that. It's the community yeah. that Yeah, creates- and she was great at it. I used to laugh and say, "There." Was, first of all, more people knew her than me. And secondly, awesome. it was like, I had better bragging rights saying I was Millie's daughter than she did saying she was Christie's mother. Oh, that is fantastic. I did not know that at all. And then like your mom, when she finally did retire at the age of 75, she worked to 75, she went and she took the Great Books course at University of Chicago.
1: That is so weird. That is so weird. So... My mom ended up going to University of Chicago, and that's where she got her MSW, a Master Mm -hmm. in Social Work. Then she went on for eight years to get her Jungian analyst. Wow. Yes. That's intense. Intense, huge, not many that accomplished that, and had her own practice throughout that whole time until she was 82. So just six years ago. Her name is still on the plaque in Evanston in her building, which I think is so cool. But the funny thing about the great books is that when my parents got divorced, the biggest fight was over the great books.
0: Oh, interesting! They like who I'm got like, them.
1: What are these great books, and why are you guys fighting right. over all the things to fight over the great uh, books? So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you are so supportive of women, which is amazing. I kind of want to hear a little bit, and this could be almost one in the same question. But what is the legacy that you want to leave behind, and is there a connection with supporting women? And so I don't know if that's two different questions. But between C two hundred and you, have so many, so many associations and committees and and platforms that you've created that are powerful and impactful. So, kind of want to know what's your purpose
0: behind that? What's your calling? What's your dream? Well, I have always found resonant the Madeline Albright comment that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. I love that. So it just to me. It's like inconceivable if you are a part of any group that hasn't yet achieved its full potential that you wouldn't want to help lift other people up. Yes. You know? um, I got an award once that was called the um, Trailblazer Award, which is lovely. And in my acceptance remarks, I said, you know, it's, it's thrilling to be a trailblazer, but it's actually more impactful to be a trail maker. Because what you're really trying to do is create a path and help other people follow that path. Right. Um, so that is something that um, has mattered to me, and that I have tried to um, take advantage of the opportunities. Whether it's through f- helping to form something like C200 or the Chicago Network, or just uh, working now to get more women on boards. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm not a legacy focused kind of person. It's just not sort of how I think. I'm I'm more. I put more stock in what am I doing every day, in every moment of every day, in my interactions with everybody. That is a something that I can feel proud of, and B something that's making things a little bit better. And sometimes there are big opportunities, you know, like getting Barack Obama elected president was a big effing deal. Oh, that's like nothing. Just nothing. Um, and sometimes they're just being really, really nice big. to someone who's waiting on your table right? so that the next time you're there, they say, I just want to thank you for, you know, yeah. seeing me and treating me yeah. like a person, which is a terrible comment on how apparently other people treat people who no. are in service positions, but nevertheless true. Remaining humble. So yeah. I think that's
1: that's huge. And I think using your name, using your influence for good. I think you do a great job of that. And that's that's I hope I hope to do the same. You know, I think well, it's really, you. really very important. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been a true pleasure. It was a pleasure for me too. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Owning Your Legacy. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with others and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about me and how I am owning my legacy, you can find me on Instagram at Lorette Rondonet and online at loretterondonet.com. Until next time.